You're listening to audio from Hardin Baptist Church. For more audio content or other information about our church, please visit hardinbaptist.org. Uh, just by a show of hands, how many of you have already put up your Christmas tree? Show of hands. Wow, a lot of us. Yes, those who haven't, go ahead and show your hands. Like, yeah, my wife's been telling me I should already do that. Um, we, I, I say that because I did it, so I could like, yes, uh, already check that off. Usually uh, Saturday after Thanksgiving is our tradition of like, hey, we're going to put on Elf, and we're going to put up our Christmas tree and decorate the house and do all the things, and then usually we get to the Christmas lights today. So hopefully we're going to be on the roof, so pray for us as we put up Christmas lights on our house. But those are some of the traditions that we normally do, and you have all sorts of traditions. It's like, hey... Um, Thanksgiving has just happened. Now it's entering into the Christmas season. You have a lot of things that probably you do, normal things. Maybe you're building new traditions, all that stuff. Well, as a church, we also do a lot of traditions too. And one of those is usually we decide on a Christmas series. And often it has to do with, well, Christmas. And uh, this year, we just think the Lord really led us to do Ruth. And at first it's like, wait, we're doing Ruth? I thought we were doing Christmas. What does Ruth have to do with Christmas? And uh, if you haven't read Ruth in a little bit, you'll find that even in chapter one, Bethlehem is mentioned four times in chapter one. And so there's kind of this connection of Ruth to Bethlehem. The end of Ruth, there's a baby born in Bethlehem who uh, then is the line of the king. And so it's like the end of it, like there's a baby born who is a king. And it's like so much of Ruth all of a sudden has to do a lot of Christmas because we find in the beginning, there's like death and curse and it ends with life and hope. And really that's what Christmas is all about. It finds us in death and curse and ends with life and hope. So we think Ruth has a lot to do with Christmas, but it also has a lot to do with you. Because what we find in Ruth is this very ordinary story. It's like two women, married, like kind of doing life, and they suffer loss, and they're trying to find bread and food and provision and marriage and all those kind of things that, well, all of us do, right? Work, marriage, life, kids, all the stuff. It's just ordinary things, like farming. But what you find is, throughout the whole story, In their ordinary story, you see the extraordinary story of God. And what we're going to see, that's also true of you and that's true of me. That as believers, we often think we're the most ordinary people in the world. Like you probably think your life is completely ordinary. Right? Like I'm just an ordinary person just going to my job and doing my thing. I'm just so ordinary. But what if you will take a moment and actually look up and look around, you will find that God can use your very ordinary story to tell his extraordinary story to all of those around you. And that you, in your ordinary story, are actually part of the extraordinary story of God. So it's trying to connect those dots as we walk through Ruth. Uh, But what we're going to find in chapter 1 is we find there's death in Moab. That, That it starts with really a curse. It starts with people fleeing from the presence of the Lord. They are running away from God. And my question is going to be, perhaps that's you this morning. Perhaps you are running away from God. And perhaps, like in this story, your running is not working. Like you're running away from God. Life was great, but now it's not. And so what do you do when running doesn't work? Here's kind of the big idea. You run back to God. 
when running from God doesn't work, you run back to God. If you have your Bibles, we are in Ruth chapter 1. And uh, if you would get there and stand, uh, we're going to read the first verse together. And then we're going to walk through the whole story during our time. So Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, here's what we read. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judea went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Father, we thank you for just this story of Ruth. God, we know that it begins with a family fleeing, but it ends with you redeeming. And God, that's our story. We run, but you redeem. So, Father, help us to see uh, just this morning that if we are running from you and life is not working out, let's stop running and let's turn and run back to you. We pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. You guys may be seated. So, the first thing we really see is fleeing. Just in that opening line that I read, we first see a timestamp that Scripture gives us. It's in the days when the judges rule. So we're in the time of the Judges. Now, if you go to the book before that, there's an entire book called Judges. Fascinating read. The very last line of Judges says this. In the days of the Judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Like, this is the people. They're doing whatever they want. They're living according to their standard of goodness and right and morality. Everyone just doing what they feel is right, not living under the Word of God. Everyone is their own king, their own God. And it doesn't work out very good. Like Judges is a crazy mess. They sin, uh, curse happens, and then they repent. They come back and they sin again, and discipline happens. And it's just a circle of they rebel, they repent, and they rebel again. And everyone at the end of the day is doing what they want to do. So we find that it's in the day of the judges rule, there is a famine in the land. So things aren't going good in God's place for God's people because they're not living under God's rule. They're doing whatever they want to do. And just by way of zooming out a little bit, it's kind of cool how Ruth is put right after the judges. Because what judges tells us is the people of Israel don't do good at ruling themselves. When everyone does what's right in their own eyes, things don't go well. So the Israelites, what they need is a ruler to rule over them. They need a king. And here comes Ruth, the story of at the end of Ruth, there's a baby born who's the dad of David, who is the king, the king they need. And then it entered into 1 and 2 Samuel and then 1 and 2 Kings. We need a king. But guess what? 1 and 2 Kings reveals all the kings of Israel, at the end of the day, none of them are perfect. They all mess up. They all rule in, in seemingly mixed, mixed bags. Some are okay. Some are really bad. So judges, we need a king. First and second kings, there is no perfect king. So we have a problem. We need a king. There's no perfect king. Which is exactly why the gospel comes to us. Because you know who we need? We need a perfect king, and we actually know who that king is. That's what Christmas is about. Our perfect king born to us whose name is Jesus. So here's the reality in your life. You don't do good at ruling yourself. You need someone to rule over you. And the only ruler that can truly rule over you, his name is Jesus. He's the good king that actually can rule over you. But here we have the time. It's when the judges rule. There's a famine in the land. 
And notice, here's a man from Bethlehem in Judea, but he's sojourning in Moab. So right off the bat, we see a man who's from Judea, who's supposed to be in Judea. That's the place of God, the people of God, the presence of God. But instead, he's sojourning in Moab. Now we got to think about the the biblical storyline, where we're at. Because at this point in uh, redemptive history, God's presence is in a place, that's what that promised land, with a particular people. So you had to link yourself with the Israelites and be where the Israelites were to be in God's presence for God's blessing. Now that's not true today. God's presence is not in a certain place among just a certain people. God's presence is everywhere among all people through his church. So it's no longer true, well, if I go to Moab, I'm outside of God's presence. No, if you go to another place, you are in God's presence because the gospel has gone forth to all nations and continue to spread all nations. But here, in this particular point of redemptive history, there's a tabernacle in a certain place, and if you wanted to be in God's presence, you went there and you stayed there. But notice, in God's place, there's a famine. And we know the famine is probably because the people are disobedient. So God is bringing a famine to bring them back to him. But instead of this family being brought back to God, they are away from God. They flee the presence and people and place of God. And it can't be more redundant in the first couple of verses to make that point. They are in the wrong place. Just notice with me in verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech. Which, by the way, if you look at his Hebrew name, it means God is king. So his name, God is king, we're going to see that he's actually acting as his own king because he's doing what he wants to do. So we see this. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malan and Chilion. Listen to this. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judea. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. So all over these first just two verses... These people are from Bethlehem. They're from Judea. They're God's people, yet they're not in God's place. They are fleeing because of the famine that has fell. And notice, they haven't just went to get some bread. Instead, it says, and they remained there. It gives the idea they're not just like going to look for provision outside of God's place. They actually like it outside of God's place. They actually like Moab better than they like Judea. They remain there. They make their lives there. And we're going to see they settle there, and they're linking themselves outside of the people of God. So they're fleeing. That's the first thing we see. But in their fleeing, we find death comes to them. Uh, Look at verse 3. It says this. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. So now you have Elimelech. God is king. He's not in God's place. He's doing his own thing. Notice, remember why they left Judea, why they left Bethlehem, the house of bread, is because there was a famine. They didn't want to die, so they left and went to Moab so they could eat and stay alive. But yet in fleeing, going to Moab, what do they ultimately do? Elimelech still dies. So he's running from death, but death is what actually happens to him. Verse 4 says this. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpha and the name of the other Ruth. They lived about 10 years and both Malon and Chilion died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her 
husband. So here, Naomi loses her husband. She's in the Moabite land. She loses her husband. They were trying to survive. They were trying to live. They were running from famine, running from God, not to God. Now there's death. Her husband has died. And you would think the most obvious thing to do is to go back to where she's from. To go back to Bethlehem in Judea and submit herself back with the people of God to be under his presence and under his provision. But instead, she actually remains in Moab and finds wives for her two sons. And so her two sons get married, Orpha and Ruth, and she is now trying to become a Moabite. I'm just going to stay here. I like it here. So I'm going to get my boys to marry these girls, and I'm going to link myself to the Moabites. I'm going to come under their care and their provision, and I'm going to live the rest of my days in Moab. She was very comfortable living apart from the presence of God. So what should have led her back to God, losing her husband, leads her even further away. And now something happens. Now her two sons also die. So again, she's running, she's trying to escape death, she's trying to provide, she's trying to live, but now death and the curse has met her in a really, really significant way. All her hopes have now turned out hopeless. And so I just want to ask before we move any further, could this be some of you in this room right now? You are, you're running away from God. Like, like things have not gone well, so you're running away from God. And you think running away from God, doing your own thing, being your own Lord, being your own God, fixing your own life, that's what's going to work. But all of a sudden, it's not working out well. All of a sudden, you're experiencing pain and loss and suffering and life's not working out. And, and all these things are happening all around you just like it happened to Naomi. Naomi, all of her hopes are now hopeless. So what do you do when all of your hopes turn hopeless? In other words, what do you do when running from God doesn't work? Well, the thing Naomi gets right in chapter 4 is when running from God doesn't work, you know what you need to do? You need to run back to God. Like, that's what you do. So if you're in a far country... If you're away from God's presence, if you're away from God's people, if you're away from God and life is not working out, stop running away and start running to him. So she's going to start making some ways back to God. It's sort of a mixed faith journey back as we're going to see, but she at least begins to go back to where she knows God's people and presence is. So next we find there is bread in Bethlehem. Notice this in verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judea. So here you have Naomi Lost her husband, lost her sons. And if you think um, back in that day, if you're a widow, you were in a very hard place. Because there weren't as many safety nets and provisions as we have now. 
Uh, if you were a widow and you didn't have a husband, the husband was the main worker and provider and protector of your home. And so if he's gone, you're in a real mess. But if you have sons, then they will take care of you. But she's lost her sons too. She's lost everything. So she has really no protection. She has no place. She's an Israelite. She's in the Moabite land. So she is in a place of utter hopelessness, but in the fields of Moab. So she's trying to work. She's trying to provide for herself. She's trying to make ends meet. In the fields of Moab, she hears about the goodness of God. And we're going to see in this ordinary story, the extraordinary story of God all over it. Because we're going to see in all of their pain and suffering and all of their plans and mishaps, God is sovereignly working every detail of the story. And we're going to see he's working where she's in death and curse. He's working redemption and life and hope. And we're going to see that throughout this story as it unfolds. But right now she's hearing in the fields of Moab that God has visited his people. And it's almost like there's a little distance between her and his people. Like, she's talking about the Israelites. She doesn't say they, that God has visited my people. She says his people. She's sort of a Moabite now, and she's out of the land. And so she is hearing about how God is faithful to his people. And you know, often in our running and in our waywardness away from God, you know what God does in his sovereign working? He reminds you of his goodness. And it's often through the whispers of people. That in your running, and your rebellion, God's not good, God's bad, I'm away from God, I don't trust God. You begin to hear your friends and coworkers, moms and dads, kids, they're talking about how good God is, how God is providing for them, how God has redeemed them. You see people baptized. You remember the gospel story that there is a death and a resurrection that actually brings hope. You might not believe that, but people all around you are seeing that and believing that. See, she's hopeless. She doesn't have bread. She doesn't have food. She doesn't have protection. She doesn't have a people anymore, but she's being reminded there is a God who provides. In her pain, she's hearing about providence. And maybe for you this morning, that's happening to you. You're running away, but through Naomi and Ruth, you're going to hear and remember that God is a God who provides. So in your running, if it's not working out, run back to God. So she is broken and she hears there's bread. And we don't really know her motivation for going back. It seems like her motivation might very well be, I'm hungry and I need food. And I know in Judea, in Bethlehem, there's, there's the house of bread. I'm going to go back and I'm going to eat food. We don't really see that she's going back because she remembers and she loves God. She's going back because she's hungry and she knows that God provides. So sort of a mixed bag of why she's going back, but at least she's coming back. At least she's running in the right direction. And next we're going to see that Naomi, she actually gives bad advice to her daughters about where they should find rest. So we see this idea of rest. They're kind of all looking for rest, protection, provision. Naomi's going to tell her daughters to find rest in the wrong places. And here's what it says in verse 8. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. So I think what we see here is... And what we're going to notice here as the text unfolds, 
that linking these girls to Moabite husbands, to Moabite households, they're also being linked to Moabite gods. And in a few moments, Naomi's actually going to say, hey, you need to go to the Moabite gods. They're going to give you rest. And so I think what Naomi is wanting for her daughter-in-laws is the basic provisions of life. How do we just survive as girls? How do we just survive in the moment that we're in? And so Naomi knows she has no survival in Moab. She's going to go back to Judea, to Bethlehem, and hopefully someone will take pity on her and give her the things she needs. But she tells her daughter-in-laws, here's how you find rest. You go marry a husband, you go back to your mom's house, find a suitable man, get married, and then you will find rest within the households of Moab. Link yourself to Moabite men and Moabite gods. That's where you're going to find rest. And so here's where I see, I don't think Naomi in chapter 1 is a super faithful person to Yahweh. I don't think she's actually believing in Yahweh like she needs to because, and we're going to see even stronger, she's telling her new daughter-in-laws, don't come to Judea with me, stay in Moab and stay with the Moabite gods. And I just want to say, would any of you tell your friends to do that? Like, would any of you are a follower of Jesus say, hey, if your life's not working out, um, just pick a religion. Like anyone, just like survey it. Like if you want like, like, you know, Jesus, Muhammad, like whichever one, just pick one and then go with it. And as long as you're good and it's all going to work out in the end, you find rest in whatever life and religion that suits you, I'll go do the religion that suits me. None of us would say that, right? Because we know there's only rest in Jesus. Naomi should plead with these girls to come with her because there's only rest in Israel's God. There's not rest in any other God or life. There's only rest in Yahweh. But she is compelling her girls to find rest in a place that rest can't be had. And Naomi should know that better than anybody. Because she's in death and curse in Moab. And so here I think Naomi's going to go back. But I know that she's going back for the exact reason that she needs to. And I think part of the problem is Naomi sees herself wrongly. And she sees God wrongly. And we're going to see that in the next set of verses. Look with me in verse 10. It says this. And they said to her, this is the two daughter-in-laws. No, we will return with you to your people. So again, it's linking. Do you want to be a Moabite or do you want to be an Israelite? Israelites, God is who you need to go with. So the daughter-in-law is like, no, we're going to come with you. We want to come with you. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and I should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So we see Naomi, she sees herself and God in wrong ways. So the first thing she sees herself. So she's telling her daughter-in-laws, go, go find husbands and life in Moab. I have nothing to offer you. And she even says, "Um, I don't have sons. And even if I got married today and I got pregnant with two boys, you would have to wait like many years before you married them 
So she's telling these girls, don't stay with me. I have no value because I have nothing to offer you. I don't have any sons. I don't have anything to bargain. I don't have anything to give away. And so Naomi sees her value as a human being based on what she can give and what she can produce. In other words, she only has value if she has sons. The only reason these two girls are going to love her is because of what she can give to them. And I just want to point out, that is not the way Naomi should see herself. Naomi should not see her value based on what she does or what she produces or what she can offer to those people around her. Naomi should know the God of the Bible and what the God of the Bible says about her. That she is valuable. Why? Because she is an image bearer of God. That's her value. Not what she does, but who she is. She is a creation of God. She's an image bearer of God. And she is a daughter of God. That's her value. That's her significance. But she doesn't feel that. Hey, daughter-in-laws, don't stay with me because I have no value. I'm unlovable because I have nothing to offer. She should see that she's lovable because of who she is in God. She's an image bearer, worthy of their love and affection, but she doesn't feel that. And I just want to ask, can some of you see yourselves this morning like Naomi sees herself? That you really believe your value as a human being is what you can offer people, what you can do for people, how useful you are to the people around you. And if you don't have anything to give, if you don't have anything to do, if you don't have anything to offer, then you are of no use and no value. Well, if that's you, you need to see that Naomi is wrong here. Naomi's not valuable because what she gives and does. She's valuable because she is a creation of God and bears his image. And you need to remember that you are not valuable because you have sons and can, and can offer uh, marriage to someone. You're not, it's not what you offer. It's not what you give. It's who you are as an image bearer of God. You have value, dignity, and worth. See, Naomi didn't understand that, but she needs to know that. And Ruth is going to show her that in a moment. That I'm coming with you, not because of what you offer, but because of who you are. Because I love you, not for what you give, but because of who you are. Ruth is going to act like God acts towards us. But then also, she not only sees herself wrong, she also views God wrong. Because what she says, oh yeah, and also, God is completely against me. And I mean, for one, you can see how she gets that, right? Like she's lost her husband, she's lost her two sons, clearly God is against her. And what I think Naomi is doing is she's looking at God through her circumstances. Here's how life is going. I'm going to look at life and I'm going to determine who God is and how God loves me. So her thoughts about God are based on her living out in the world and how things are going. So God is determined by her circumstances. And her circumstances tell her that God doesn't love her and God is not for her. God is actually against her. God is an enemy to her. But that's the wrong way to view God. We don't view God through our circumstances. We view our circumstances through God. That if you look around at your life and say, how's life going? Well, let me see how God is. That's the wrong way to see God. You first look at God, who he is, that he is holy, that he is good, that he is loving, that he is for you, that in Christ, he 
is not going to leave or forsake you. You see that through the gospel, who God is, and then you can see your circumstances through God, not the other way around. So she sees herself wrongly and she sees God wrongly. And I just want to ask, is that you this morning? Do you have a picture of yourself that says, I'm valuable based on what I do? If that's you, you know what you'll do? You'll work really hard for the attention of people around you. And it's no way to live. And if you think God's love is determined by my circumstances, you know what you'll do? You'll try really hard to live a really good life so God will love you. And that's not the gospel. God doesn't love you because you do really good. He loves you through Christ. Christ did good for you. And if you believe in Christ, he loves you in Christ. He loves you, not what you do. And so we got to see ourselves properly and we have to see God properly. And Ruth is going to help in both of these. Verse 14 says this. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpha kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. But Ruth clung to her. So, so Orpha's like, yeah, that's kind of right. Like, you don't got a son, so I'm out. I'll give you a kiss. I'm gone. I'm going to go find my man. I'm going to go link up. I'm going to go live my life in Moab. I'm going to find my own provisions. But Ruth, it says, doesn't listen to Naomi. She doesn't say, yes, you're only valuable based on what you can give me. Instead, it says Ruth clings to Naomi. Why does she cling to Naomi? Because she loves Naomi. And we see Ruth, her name means friendship, and she is being that true friend to Naomi. Loving Naomi for Naomi, not for what Naomi gives or produces. And see, we could take a little line from this playbook, and that's how we need to love people, by the way. We need to love Naomi's. People that are unlovable and don't have anything to offer and can't give us anything, we need to love them because I think Ruth, in her loving, she is showing and mirroring the covenant love and kindness of God. God doesn't love us based on what we give. He loves us, period. And that's what Ruth is doing. She clings to Naomi. And notice what it says in verse 15. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people. Listen to this. And to her gods, return after your sister-in-law. She says, I've been arguing. I don't, I don't think Naomi has a proper view of God. She's saying, hey, um, don't cling to me. Do what Orpha did. She's going to find a husband, and she's submitting to the pagan gods, the Moabite gods. Naomi should know there are no other gods besides the one God of Israel. She's telling Ruth to find rest and provisions in something that can't give rest or provisions. She's giving her daughter-in-law, again, bad advice. But Ruth is not going to have it. Notice what it says in verse 16. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. And here's kind of that famous line of Ruth. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And listen to this. And your God, my God. See, Naomi says, hey, just go link to the Moabites. Go have the Moabites gods. And Ruth says, no, I'm linking myself to you. I'm clinging to you because I'm only part of your people and I want your God to be my God. This is a faith moment for Ruth. Ruth's not just going with Naomi. She's going with Naomi's God. 
She believes more in the God of Israel than the God of the Moabites that she's grown up with, that she's heard about. But now she's hearing and seeing there is a God who is actually real and can actually provide and love her. And she is clinging herself to Naomi, but also to Naomi's God. Listen to her commitment. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also of anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So again, Naomi is giving bad advice. I'm not valuable. I don't have anything to give you. Um, God, he's dealt wrong with me. You should just go find your own gods. Maybe they'll deal better with you. And Ruth won't have any of it. She clings to Naomi and she clings to her God. Wherever you go, I will go. I will be with you. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. I think we get this little picture of Ruth showing the covenant love and kindness of God. That this is what God's love is like in just a little way. But of course, God's love is so much bigger than Ruth's love for Naomi. But we're seeing what love looks like. Not based on what you do, but who you are. And we see that she's linking herself to the Israelites. And so I just want to ask, like, this this is like Christmas season um, and, and we're going to have a, a series of daily readings that connect us to Ruth. Uh, so later today, you're going to get a text message from us that's asking you to, to sign up for our daily readings. Some of you are already daily readers. That's great. But if you're not, we'd love for you to sign up because we're going to put out a video content every Tuesday that links you to Ruth. And one of the questions we're going to ask is, who's your Naomi? And we're going to look at the, the just compassion of Jesus in the Gospels all this week. Because Ruth is showing compassion and generosity to Naomi, who really doesn't deserve it, but she just does it. And we're going to ask for you, who is your Naomi right now, this season? Who can you show love to who hasn't earned it, who hasn't bought it, but you can just give it because that's what God does for you? And so we're going to ask that question. So I would encourage you to link up to those daily readings because there's always going to be like, okay, what's your part of this Ruth story? How can you be like Ruth to Naomi? But we're going to see Naomi. She, she's going back, but she, she's still bitter. She's still really frustrated and complaining about who God is. Notice what it says in verse 19. It says this. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred up because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And so I just want to like set the scene. Imagine if you're Naomi. You're going back to Bethlehem after like 10 plus years of being gone. And you're probably wondering, what's everybody going to think when I get there? And when you get there, you were kind of right because the whole town is stirred up. Like everybody's talking. And not only the town stirred up, but it says specifically, the women start asking. Not everybody, the women start talking and they ask, hey, is this Naomi? Question mark. And I think it's not like this uh, great, like, let's throw a party, let's have a procession. We're so happy she's home. It's kind of like the prodigal son in in Jesus's uh, Luke 15. Uh, The prodigals came back and everybody's like, hmm, what's she doing back? I thought she went to the Moabites. I thought she was like living life, like we were in famine, remember? And you ran away. 
So you can imagine like what Naomi would have thought coming back. What are people going to say? What are they going to ask? What are they going to think of me? And for some of you, thinking about coming back to God and God's people, your thought is, what are they going to say when I get back? Well, what are people going to say when I walk in? And maybe some of you are listening, like you're watching online right now, and that's your thought. Man, like, like I've been at home since COVID, and I haven't came back yet. And for some of you online, that's, that's a needed thing. Maybe you're a shut-in. Maybe you can't get here. There's reasons why. But some of you, you're just, you just haven't came back yet. And you've waited so long that your thought is, what are they going to say when I get back? That had to be Naomi's fear. She had to be worried about, what if I step in the door? What if I come back? What are they going to say? And as she comes, everybody's sort of talking. Because Naomi, she's coming back with no husband, no sons, and a plus one from Moab. Like, that's kind of like, wait, is that Naomi? Who's that girl? Which means she obviously gave her sons in marriage to Moabites. So there's a lot of, like, baggage that she's coming back with. What are they going to say? What are they going to do? You know where Naomi got it Right? At the end of the day, she didn't care, and she just came back. And you know, if you have a roadblock for why you're coming back, sort of to be with God's people and be in God's presence, like whatever the roadblock is, just come back. And you know what? The people of God, they can get over whatever it is and can respond, and through God's grace, we're going to brace and love you when you come back. So whatever your reason, I'm running from God, I want to come back, but I'm not sure I can. Whatever the roadblock is, just run back to God, and he will take care of the roadblocks. Just, just, just make your way back. And so notice there is this bitterness that she faces. She says to all of the women who are asking all the questions, hey, I thought you left, I thought it was a party, I thought everything was great. She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. Now, Naomi means pleasant, good, lovely. Mara means bitter. Don't call me pleasant anymore. That was what my mama named me. But now I'm naming myself, and I'm naming myself Bitter. Because life has not went well. And then she says this. This is why they should call her bitter. For the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty brought calamity upon me? So she's saying I'm bitter. Life has not worked out. And she, in a real sense, is blaming God. Just notice the language. I went away full. The Lord brought me back empty. So when I was living my life, I was full. Everything was great. But then the Lord got a hold of my life, and the Lord brought me back empty. Which, by the way, sometimes the Lord has to make you empty so that you'll be full in him. Like, that, that's a reality. That happened in my life. If you've came to Christ, that probably happened in your life. There was an emptying of you so that you could get Christ. But I think she also forgets her life in Moab I think it's similar to the Israelites. Remember when they escaped uh, through the Exodus and they're in the wilderness with God, in God's presence, as God's people? You know what they continually said to God? I wish we'd go back to Egypt. Man, life was so good there. Like, it was awesome in Egypt. We had tons of stuff to eat. Uh, yeah, but you were slaves all day, every day, seven days a week, never rested. Life was terrible in Egypt. But they thought, man, I was full and great and everything was good. Can we go back there? I think that's sort of Naomi in this moment. Hey, I was full in Moab. Everything was great. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It didn't work out. Your running ran out. 
And yes, you're coming back empty. And yes, that might have been some of the Lord's doing that you're empty so that you would find his provision for your life. And so now she's saying, I'm completely bitter. The Lord has done all this. So she is blaming the Lord for her current circumstances and all of her current suffering. So I want to ask the question in our last eight minutes, is her suffering the cause of the Lord? Like, did the Lord cause Naomi's suffering? Is this the Lord's doing in her life? Because Naomi certainly thinks so. I mean, just notice, let's read just a few of the lines that she says about God. The Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. The Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has testified against me. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So she absolutely believes all of her suffering, all of her wrongs, all of her ills, her bitterness is because of the Lord. The Lord is the one who brought all of her suffering. And so I just want to ask, is that true? Is the Lord to blame for all of her suffering? And I'll just say, we're not given a yes or no in the text. And so I just want to think through this, this question of, is, this, is Naomi saying true things? Well, I think for one, there are two truths when it comes to our suffering. Number one, the Lord is sovereign. That's absolutely true. And it's also true that the world is broken. So both of those things are both true. The Lord is sovereign. He is in control. He is the Almighty. But also, guess what? We sinned and rebelled against God, and a lot of bad stuff has happened because of that. So God is sovereign. He's in control. But we also have completely messed up the creation He has made. So what we can see in our own suffering, that one of two things is true. Either God is causing it or God is allowing it. And we're not really sure in Naomi's case which one is the, is God causing the suffering or is he allowing the suffering or is it a mixture of both? But in sort of thinking through that, I want us to think about three things that we should do or not do in our own suffering. Because I think Naomi gets part of it right and part of it wrong in how she responds to God. Number one is this, don't blame God for all of your suffering. I think that's sort of the first thing that we learn um, just in Scripture, but especially in this text. Don't blame God for all of your suffering. Now, now, why do I say that? Naomi is complaining all of her suffering is God's fault. He's against her. He brought calamity. He, he made her empty. He did all of these. This is God's fault that I'm suffering. Now, can we just back up and say, um, hey, Naomi, let's, let's chat for just a moment. Uh, where have you been like last 10 years? Well, I've been in Moab. What have you been doing? Like, linking myself with Moab gods. Okay, so it could be that a little bit of your suffering has to do with a little bit of you made some really bad choices. You've been in the wrong place, outside of God's place, outside of God's presence. So maybe some of your hardship has been because you made some really bad decisions. And see, when it comes to our suffering... Sometimes the Lord is bringing suffering in our lives to bring us back to God. And I think that's some of what's happening even in this story. But I don't think we can blame all of our suffering on God. Because sometimes, guess what? You do some really wrong things. You make some really wrong moves. And now you're reaping the consequences of those bad decisions. And you can't just be angry and mad at God for all of the wrong that comes your way. Because some of it, you're reaping what you sow. 
I mean, here's, here's Naomi. She's, in, she's wanting to be a Moabite. So there's going to be some things that aren't going to work out. So I don't think all of her suffering can be blamed on God as she is clearly doing. But the second thing I think that she gets right is she does believe God is absolutely sovereign over everything. And I think that is absolutely true and absolutely right and absolutely good. So the second thing is this. Trust God is sovereign over all of your suffering. So I think for one, it's not helpful to blame all of your suffering on God, but it is helpful to remember that God is sovereign over every single bit of your suffering. He either causes it or allows it. Because if you don't believe God has control of it, if you, don't, if you believe God didn't know about it or couldn't prevent it, then you can't trust God to get you through it. If God is not so- sovereign in your suffering, he can't sovereignly get you out of your suffering. So when you're suffering, you have to trust God. Hey, this might be from the Lord. This might be from my own just wayward life. But the truth is I'm suffering and I know God is sovereign. I know he's the almighty. I know he's in control of all things. So I'm going to trust in God. So I think she blames God too much, but she does trust that he is actually in control. So I think that's what she does right. And then thirdly, I think this is important. Be honest with God in your suffering. And I think this is where she gets it half right half wrong. Naomi is very honest about her life. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. Life hurts. I lost my husband. I lost my two sons. And I'm not just going to say, hey, just smile. God's got a plan. All things are good. No, this is not good. Losing my husband, losing my kid, that's not good. I, don't, I do not like it. I do not think this was right. I do not think this was good. She is complaining about God. She is honest with her emotions. She is saying what she feels. But here's the problem. She is complaining about God. And what she needs to do is complain to God. And that is a big difference. See, the Bible gets us permission to lament. And you know what lamenting is? It's being honest about our emotions and our feelings and actually telling God how we feel. Not being just like, hey, everything's good. Like, I know just life's terrible, but it's, it's good. I just love it. It's just happy. No, lament is we, get, we, we cry and we complain and we ask God the hard questions we're feeling in our souls. I don't think this is good. I don't think this is a good decision. I need, I need you, God, to tell me why this happened because I don't know this is a good move. See, she complains about God. She needs to complain to God. And I think we're given help all throughout the Psalms. I'll only give you two little snippets of them about the goodness of lamenting and being honest with God. Psalm 44, 23 says this, Awake, why are you sleeping, O God? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Now, if my little girl at our dinner table said, Hey, can I pray? And she begins to pray and says, Hey, God, can you wake up? Hey, God, I know you're sleeping right now, but can you wake up? I'd be like, "Uh, Hold on, honey. that's a bad prayer. That is a lot of bad theology. God does not sleep. God is always up. He is always alert. He is always there. He always hears. So this is an irreverent, untrue prayer. The prayer is saying wrong things about God. This is not true. God is not asleep. God doesn't need to be roused up. But the prayer is saying, I feel like you're asleep. And I want you to wake up. Here the Bible is inviting us 
to take our emotions and grief, our emotions and pain, and actually complain to God. Notice, it keeps going. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget the afflicted and the oppressed? God doesn't forget. He never forgets. But we're invited to ask God, why are you forgetting? Why are you sleeping? Why don't you wake up? Why don't you do something? This is a prayer in the Bible. It's an honest prayer in people who are facing honest pain. I mean, think about the Lord Jesus on the cross. He prayed Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's okay to pray that. But it's not okay to ask your friend, hey, why has God forsaken me? Why is God sleeping? It's okay to say it to God. See, Naomi complained about God. She needed to complain to God, to be honest. And some of you, you've been through some really bad things. You've been some really bad suffering, and you haven't had permission to actually go and complain to God. And your pain has left you walking away from God because you don't trust Him. But if you will lament and be honest and complain to God, then your pain can actually bring you into His presence because He can handle your complaints. He's a big God. He can handle all of your complaints. So take them to him. Run to him in your pain and in your hurt. Naomi has lost great loss. She doesn't need to complain about God. She needs to complain to God. Because that's where God meets us. When we come into his presence, honest with him. And then we see last, the return of Naomi to Bethlehem. Verse 22, now Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Here they are returning from Moab to Bethlehem. And it just so happens it's the beginning of barley harvest. And it's a little tilt to chapter two, because we're going to find at the barley harvest, they're going to meet an unsuspected person His name is Boaz, and he's going to be an unexpected redeemer because we're going to see even in her suffering, even in her pain, when she's running from God, when it doesn't work out, she runs back to God, and she had no clue that God was sovereignly working every detail of the story to bring redemption to her and to Ruth, and to bring redemption, by the way, to the whole cosmos through her baby who would one day be in the line of Jesus. That's the story of Ruth. A very ordinary story. Loss, death, curse that ends with life, hope, and joy. It's it's our story. It's the gospel story. That ordinary life of you and me that ultimately is played under the extraordinary story of God. And we're going to see all throughout this book that they're doing and they're moving, but God is working every bit behind the scenes to bring about his glory. So my question this morning, are you running? And if you are, is it not working? If you're running and it's not working, here's what you need to do. You need to turn and run back to God. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for the story of Ruth. We thank you for a story that starts in Moab, that then goes to Bethlehem, that, well, praise be to God, brings us, Gentiles, Moabites, through Bethlehem, into the kingdom of Christ. So let us continue to see their story, but ultimately your story, and how our story fits into yours. We pray this in the good name of Christ. Amen. You're listening to audio from Hardin Baptist Church. For more audio content or other information about our church, please visit 
hardenedbaptist.org.